Hello, and welcome to This Movie is Gay, a podcast that takes your favorite apparently heterosexual films and demonstrates why that is, in fact, not the case. I'm Haley. I'm Emma. And today, in honor of our 30th episode, and we counted multiple times, so we're almost sure that it actually is the 30th episode, we have a very special guest. My wife in the eyes of the joint membership to Historic Royal Palaces that we once had. Um, Emily, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Emily McLeod, um, longtime listener, first time <laughs> caller <laughs> this glorious endeavor um, from you, Magnificent Human. So excited to be here. Don't encourage us. <laughs> yes, encourage us. We're so and excited. I, yeah. I, I miss that uh, membership to the Historic Royal Palaces very much. We had a really good time. And in fact, I think one of the palaces that we, I mean, it wasn't a palace, it was a historic home that we visited is relevant to today's episode, which is tackling the 1999 adaptation of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, which is associated with Kenwood House, but now that I think about it, is that's not one of the historic Royal Palace's properties, but that's fine. It's a stately home um, <laughs> that we visited together. So- we did. And unfortunately for us, you um, have actually been studying Mansfield Park in like a scholarly context recently. So, I mean, that's great for you, the listener, and bad for me and Emma, who at long yeah. last will be revealed as the front we <laughs> the, are. The charlatans we are. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I was teaching it in an intro to English Lit class. Um, that's part of my uh, grad program. But I am not necessarily a Jane Austen expert, so I welcome all, all kinds here. <laughs> Great. I think mostly what we are today is experts in gay stuff, and that is what we're going to be unpacking in this movie today. I was sort of thinking, like, Jane Austen is not... I couldn't really think of another movie we could have done. Yeah. I was thinking about that. There's not a lot. You have to look hard under the hood to discover any of our kind of favorite free-floating gay energy in the Regency stuff. I would say that the 2020 Emma adaptation um, did have a, a bit of, um, shall I say, frisson between... <laughs> Um, <gasps> there she is. Uh, Emma and Harriet. Yeah. Smith. Um, mm. There was there was a bit just just a little just a dash you know just kind of a fleeting um, mm. feeling there and I think that's kind of when you're talking about queer Austin I think Emma gets brought up a bit. Um, yes. But yeah. I think kind of Emma gets brought up I assume for the same reasons that as we were like watching Mansfield Park this week, I was like, part mm -hmm. of the gayness is the interactions between the characters. And like, part of it is just like how sort of bored and annoyed everyone seems by the people they're supposedly like in romantic relationships with. Like, I feel like Emma has a similar energy of like, oh, if we must, I guess. Yeah, I feel like it's also one of the ones where the social universe is quite closed. So it's like, you know, five people of these people, two of whom you're related to. You know what I mean? And it's always just like, <laughs> Which one like, are you gonna 
fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so acknowledging that Mansfield Park is, I think, you know, I'm going to make the controversial statement and say it's not the most popular Jane Austen book um, or probably the most famous adaptation. Let's dive into mm. a quick summary. And I think I'm going to toss this over as a punishment to our lovely mm. guest. Would you like to summarize Mansfield Park for us? Great. So Fanny Price, our protagonist, moves from her poor family's crowded home in Portsmouth to Mansfield Park, the country estate of her rich aunt and uncle, Lord and Lady Bertram. She gets to know her cousins, um, the eldest, Tom, who is often either drunk or away. Um, the girls, Mariah and Julia, who are attractive but vain and Edmund, who becomes her closest friend and the secret object of her affection. When Annie, when Fanny, when Fanny is about 18, her uncle Sir Thomas has to go attend to his failing plantation in the Caribbean and he leaves the family to fend for themselves. They welcome new neighbors, the siblings, Henry and Mary Crawford, who bring what Emma called when we were watching it scary sex energy to Mansfield. Um, Mariah, who's already engaged, flirts with Henry. Edmund falls for Mary. Henry starts to pursue Fanny. Fanny is horrified by everything. Um, Sir Thomas returns. Fanny rejects Henry's proposal. Henry runs away with the married Mariah, leaving the family in scandal. And then Edmund realizes that he loves Fanny as more than just a cousin sister and they get married <laughs> the end yay yeah. i've got to say emma if you're gonna laugh at the name fanny every time then we're not gonna get anywhere i, I was only laughing at scary sex energy uh -huh. as usual which you yeah. can't because it's dangerous it's it dangerous. is i feel like actually up front maybe we should address something that I feel like it's going to get woven through the rest of the conversation, but maybe isn't directly related to like the queerness per se, which is the thread mm -hmm. of sort of acknowledgement of slavery and the fact that the Bertram's yeah. wealth comes from like plantations and the enslaved people that they own, um, which is like very glancingly referred to in the book but the film really makes it explicit as a sort of like metaphor for the different types of like gender depression that people are experiencing which is problematic but also you know um I think a really unusual kind of energy to bring into an Austin adaptation and definitely not one that even like more recent ones have mm -hmm. mimicked yeah, yeah. And I would say there's some like there's that famous quote from Jane Eyre about like being a bird who's you know or i'm not a bird that you can cage or whatever and there's that imagery as well um in in this uh adaptation about birds and restraints and so those themes of like freedom and uh tyranny in terms of sir thomas's um kind of reign over the household they mm -hmm. make explicit in that like you said problematic metaphor but it is a metaphor you know that was used at the time as well, like Mary Wollstonecraft refers to um, like women, you know, being like, like slaves um, or enslaved people. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think it's relevant that 
the director and screenwriters, you know, ad, 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 um, adapters decided to include so much of it mm -hmm. in the adaptation. Yeah, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. And it feels, I don't know, it's something that feels to me like um, it, you know, it brings us back to like the period piece that is also 1999. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like, it feels like the, to me, the, 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 the problematic, but like sort of valiant, but not quite woke attempt at incorporating the source of the family's wealth into the consciousness of Fanny, who is the only person who is like an outsider in that space and who comes from a lower class background and so is able to view the wealth with more critical eyes. Like the fact that the film tries to incorporate that into her worldview and like, you know, missteps probably by a contemporary viewpoint, but still like does the thing feels very 1999 to me in a way that is like, <laughs> oh, like that's quite like they they really tried to do the thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, feels very 1999 but also, you know, I can't think of another Austin adaptation that tries to answer mm -hmm. the glaring question of where did this money come from? No. What are these mysterious business interests abroad that people are going to see to? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, and I, I don't know, I feel like maybe it's because not, it's because not all of them have, I don't know, I feel like it has something to do with Fanny's economic outsiderness that that it makes it a thread because the thing is that's not always like the couching of the protagonist viewpoint you know what i mean i mean obviously the dashwood sisters are mad poor and sense sensibility and then fall on the kind of mercy of richer relations but it's like nobody ever tries to explain it in sense sensibility so yeah and i yeah. guess also maybe it is what i said before of mansfield park is not the most beloved <laughs> of the Austin novels. So on the one hand, it's like, you sort of have to think of something to make it different for people who already know they don't like Mansfield Park, but also you have more freedom to like be pretty radical and liberal with the adaptation, which I think they've done in a lot of other ways too that we, we can talk about. Yeah. And no yeah. one's gonna get mad the way that if you were like, we're gonna do Pride and Prejudice, but you know, we're gonna basically also turn Lizzie into an avatar. Yeah, yeah. also about like, slavery and yeah. Lizzie's going to be an avatar for Jane Austen in a really direct way. Like people would be like, Hey, that's not what this is. Right, 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 right. Yeah. No. Yeah. The thing about her being an avatar for Jane Austen is also something I super want to come back to. And like the weird theatricality of the movie, I think you're so right that it just like formally in a lot of ways takes all these liberties that I think are kind of cool because it basically is like, nobody cares that much about this one. Right. And then it's sort of like, you know, <laughs> makes a lot of choices. Yeah. And what better place to start from when you're adapting a film than <laughs> nobody will mind if I fuck this up, right? Yeah. It was interesting talking about that, the style of it. Um, I was reading some more kind of recent online reviews of people revisiting this film for whatever reason in the year 2020 or 2021. And they uh, were like, oh, Greta Gerwig stole the directed address of the letters to uh, from this movie uh, in Little mm. Women um, mm. and her adaptation. And then I started thinking about um, like Joe March and Fanny mm. Price, you know, these kind of uh, position as these like write writers and they're in their little garret, you know, penning away and, um, yeah. and they have this really great, you know, best male friend slash surrogate brother 
you know, but uh, yeah. Little Women is definitely more, um, or the adaptation, Gerwig's adaptation is definitely more queer than this movie turns out to be, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's almost too queer to put on the list, but it, maybe we should anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really hadn't thought about that comparison, but I mean, it reminds me of like, then there was also that, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's just something you see the idea, especially when you have like female writers of like, how can we turn our female lead into the writer so that this can kind of be a celebration of her kind of in spite of what she actually wrote. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. I mean, it wasn't until, it wasn't until I like studied Austin in college that I, that I realized what a lot of the early passages in the movie are quoting from in those direct address things. And the fact that it is, because I think having seen the film as a child, which like, I know we sometimes talk about like where we first encountered the movie, you don't think about the fact that like, oh, they're doing an Austin avatar. You know, you think about, you just think about the positioning Joe March style of like, oh, this is a literary, this is a character whose solitude and outsidership is being turned into like an active observer role by virtue of being a writer. You know what I mean? And it's something that feels like badass and cool in also a very 90s way of like, look at this smart girl, her horse is named Shakespeare. She's so cool. And like- This is Shakespeare. Mrs. Yes, her female horse is named Shakespeare, which is a great little <laughs> moment. It's delighting, de delighting the the Venn diagram of '90s horse girls and also big lit nerds. That that Venn uh, diagram is a bagel. Yeah, I mean, it's a yeah, it's a circle. Say, it's a circle. <laughs> it's a circle. <laughs> and Haley is in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're all in it. Um, but so let's talk about, because something that I assume probably came up in the versions, the, the, I mean, the like responses that you were reading. And I think the thing that prompted us to kind of think about doing this movie is the relationship between Fanny and Mary Crawford, who is the aforementioned scary sex energy neighbor who comes and like wreaks havoc on everyone's lives through the power of her bedazzled translucent sleeves. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so like, there's, I mean, it's, it's, it's like they have like a queer sexual energy because Mary has sexual energy with everyone she comes into contact with, including her own brother, partly. Yep. yep. And they uh, share a cigarette at the billiard table. It's just <laughs> the thing, sharing, sharing a cigarette and fluidly passing it back and forth as a piece of essentially stage choreography is a like very hot and be a trick we've all used. And it's just like, so, and I don't know, there's something about the, the fact that her scary sex energy encompasses Henry, her brother, who also has scary sex energy because they show up together and they're just like, it's us, chaos bisexuals, here to ruin you all emotionally, sexually, and spiritually, and maybe financially. <laughs> and like, you know, and the fact that, I don't know, it just makes it a bit incesty in a way that Fanny and Edmund are also already a bit incesty. So suddenly, like a third into the movie or not even, it's like, oh, this is a scary sex energy quadrangle. Like, yeah, well, because Fanny, Fanny and, and Edmund kind of get paired off with two siblings. Yeah. And then, yeah, you have Fanny also kind of having this energy with Mary. Yeah. Henry does not, I don't think, speak to Edmund so we're good there 
we're fine there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and when not to skip to the end or anything, but when they show, you know, the Crawfords at the end and who they end up with as kind of mm -hmm. also this weird incest quadrangle. Yeah. Um, you wonder, you know, were they just trying to set that up with Fanny and Edmund? Too? You guys, this is why you have to lay down a lot of really explicit communication while you're building your polycule. This is the thing, guys. <laughs> you just need to be like, here are the rules, written consent. You know, it's hard to be a swinger in the early 19th century. There's just not a lot of vocabulary for expressing that side of your, you know, sexuality. Put it on a t-shirt, put it on a t-shirt. Yeah, oh, I mean, there's so much to say about, about Mary and Henry, but because you like brought us there right away, can I just talk for a second about their introductory shot? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a perfect place to begin with figuring out Mary's role in this chaos. Right. Because the thing is like the dynamic between Fanny, who is like now grown up, this sort of the movie grows her from, you know, youth to young adulthood so that she's been in the house for like 10 years already or some shit or like a while. And so the dynamic between her and Edmund is already sort of established. But like the last thing that she says, I feel like one of the, the last piece of direct address she has before the Crawfords arrive is that moment where she's like, life is nothing more than an endless succession of busy nothings or something like that. And it's like, life is boring into this tableau come the Crawford siblings bringing hard sex energy. And so someone's like, Oh, those neighbors, uh, they've come. And they like walk in. And the first, the way that the shot is structured, in this super choreographed way is at first you see it like pans around the room to the family like receiving them like looking at their arrival and slow-mo like the cards fall out of people's hands and people's like jaws drop and you're like jesus christ what is happening <laughs> and then the camera pans over. you're just like are they nude like what is happening <laughs> and then the camera pans over and it starts at the floor and like on Mary's shoes and the camera, like as a pair of eyes, elevators all the way up from Mary's shoes, up her body to her head, and then does the same thing with Henry. So it then starts at his boots and is like up the pants, up the crotch, up the jacket, face, weird, unfortunate sideburns. Oh, and what's really so unfortunate so and unfortunate. weird hair really 90s hair but what's interesting about that as well is like thinking about the sort of like narrative you construct by juxtaposing images it's not like they're like we see the women reacting and then we see Henry and then we see the men reacting and then we see Mary it's like this free-for-all where it's like we yeah. have no idea who which of the two is prompting which response and like who is yes. looking at whom it's just like this complete like mess of like what is provoking this are like there's one where it's like we see Mariah's you know fiance have this sort of baffled look on his face and it's like is he jealous of the man attracted to the woman like I we just don't know and we don't know who I guess we know that it's two siblings we know it's like Mr and Miss yeah. Crawford who've come in yeah. so it's like we know it's going to be a man and a woman but it's like we see their reactions before we have any way to contextualize, including whether their responses of like arousal or jealousy or what. Yeah. 
That's such a good point. That's such a good point. It is a, it's a looking free for all. And also like this thing about the movie being, being staged like a play, there's so much theatrical choreography to the point of like actual frozen tableau, which I've like almost never seen in another movie. It's like such a strange choice and I'm obsessed with it. There's something really stagey about that, about the fact that it's just entrance audience and you can't tell who specifically, like, it's just like the people in the room, the people making the entrance. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That's such a good point. It sort of gives, it like sacrifices a director's ability to kind of like direct your gaze direct and perspective. create a narrative. Yeah. Of who someone's looking at, which is fitting. Cause it's like, they really just come to wreak havoc generally. Yes. I think it's much actually- clearer in, no, sorry. Sorry. You're going to say. No, 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 no. Go ahead. That I was, I'm just supporting that point. It's it, that's exactly it. Well, cause it, I think Emily, you've read it more recently, so you can affirm or tell me I've forgotten. But in my, my recollection is that in the book, Mary's goal of, I want to go over to Mansell Park to marry the oldest son is much more explicit and clear. Whereas in the movie, it's a little more vague. She's sort of like, oh, they're nice. Like there's a conversation that siblings have as they're like leaving for the first time where it's like, they're clearly both like angling to get with someone. But the sort of like directness of like, I have a goal, it's to marry the heir and that's what I'm going to do is kind of not as distinct in the movie, it seems to me. Yeah, like what you said about kind of, we don't even know where they're ener- where any of this energy is directed. And I think that's picking up on the book as well of like who they should be directing their energy toward and then who they actually do. And for both of them, mm-hmm. it's misdirected. Um, in terms of what's like socially expected or acceptable because Henry is supposed to be interested in the younger sister, Julia, who's unattached. And he then goes to Mariah, who's engaged. And Mary is supposed to be angling for the heir, but then she kind of gets sidetracked by Edmund. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's also because Tom isn't there as much, which I know we will get to. (laughs) and also just because Edmund's so irresistible yeah I mean I never understood the like the connection between Mary and Edmund at all especially especially because for the whole film all she does is is like be bummed about the fact that he's going to be a boring curate his whole life and like all she does is sort of flounce around going man this is boring you know it's just just megs him relentlessly the basis for any true attachment but yeah I mean I know we will talk about Tom but he's played by Johnny Lee Miller who's very cute I guess but it's funny to think of like oh man yeah not that he ever like displays that particularly like we just I mean I like this movie, but I was just Me really too. struck by how improbable it is that everyone's just falling over themselves to get to marry Edmund. You know what I was thinking about? I feel like the weird like uh, symmetry that makes the sort of incesty quadrangle have a sexual energy to it is that it feels like there's so much, there's like a fetishization of sincerity by the Crawfords and also backward, the thing that is sexy about their sex energy and also why it's like dangerous sex energy is that Fanny and Edmund are both people who are, who are afraid of superficiality. 
Like, you know, like it's a definition of like, there are superficial people and earnest people and they dance around each other, but ultimately can never match outside of their kind. That's really interesting. That is so kind of the moral axis of the story and not to keep like teasing this, but let's, I want to like hold on to that for when we talk about Tom, because I think thinking of him as like (laughs) his sort of place on the superficial sincere axis is really interesting. But also I think it's really interesting maybe to lead us into the first kind of um, sparky scene that Mary and Fanny have together where Tom rolls up from London with his buddy Yatesy. Um, Yatesy! We love (laughs) Yatesy. We love Yatesy. No, we just love Charles Edwards. Um, uh, And he's like, I saw this really salacious play in London. Let's put it on. Um, And so they decide to put on a play very transparently as an excuse for all the various couples that want to touch each other to do that. Um, And uh, Edmund and Mary, I mean, Edmund and Fanny are kind of like refusing to participate and they're sort of hiding up in her room and like Edmund's in agony is like, it's just not appropriate. Like, what can we do? And Fanny is very upset because Mary is being flirty. Um, and then Mary turns up and is like, hey, I need someone to help me rehearse. Fanny, why don't you do it? Um, and they haven't had then- the role that, like, that yeah. she's opposite. So she's yes, like, because Fanny it's clearly can- that Edmund's refusing to play it. So they're like trying to right. figure out who it's going to be. And he's like stressed right. about another person joining this madness but yeah so then she's like fanny you can do it for now um and then they proceed to do this very sort of like i could teach you about pleasure like kind of (laughs) sexy 18th century scene um while edmund watches it's porn everything's porn and i mean no no go ahead emily the camera pans around them you know, and, and as Mary gets closer and closer and like is rubbing Fanny's back and while Fanny has, is so awkward, like absolutely like not reciprocating any kind of this, um, this interest. She's like holding the script in both hands with like her elbows sticking out 90 degrees so that like Mary can like slide yeah. her arms like underneath. And it's clearly, I mean, like speaking of things that feel really 90s, it's clearly Mary being like I'm gonna stage a lesbian scene because that'll make Edmund aroused and then he'll want to make out with me which is what happens um but it is like really that's why he's sexual it's also in Fanny's bedroom like this it is in Fanny's bedroom that we've associated with her writing and with her and Edmund you know having conversations in their kind of intimate space um and then Mary mm-hmm. just plows right in and disrupts it and I just want to say I think it is interesting that it's flipped in the book that um Fanny and Mary are alone rehearsing the scene and then Edmund comes in and it's after he's been cast and then Edmund and Mary perform the scene for Fanny so this this adaptation makes completely flip like the dynamics of the scene around that might be gayer (laughs) that might be gayer well for it to have been them first without Edmund and for them for then him to interrupt yeah 
That's interesting because in the dynamic, as you laid it out, that's exactly, it's like, it's so, this is why Mary's destructive chaos by energy is like, because I know that I'm sexually irresistible to all beings, what I'm going to do is like seduce this woman in front of this fool who's having like a paroxysm about appropriateness, which is like hot to her, I guess. And then like, he'll, you know, and then he'll interrupt us. And then I'll get what I want. And it's like comical how quickly it happens because of how transparent the ploy is. Yeah, I mean, she's being so sort of just like sensually rubbing Fanny's back. Like there's no sort of like, oh, Edmund, you jealous, silly boy. You can't even stand to see her like doing a scene with someone else. It's like there, there's just so much rubbing. <laughs> and it takes, well, yeah, also- like 15 seconds. And he's like, actually on second thought, you know, ah. <laughs> It's just like, it's absolutely just like everybody is so horny in this movie. It's so, it's just like, as soon as the Crawfords arrive, I don't know. There's just, also the text, the text is none but a woman can teach the science of herself. Like while the major rubbing is happening. And then it's just like, it's, and then Fanny's like voice breaks. There's that moment where Mary's text is woman herself is a problem. And I will teach you how to make her out which is also just like whoa and then like fanny's line is you teach and she's like "Eh!" like she just like is flipping out and then edmund is like oh let me get in here (laughs) so So this is where i get confused when people say that like oh like fanny is a lesbian because like clearly i like in this adaptation i don't feel like she's receiving this like she seems very uncomfortable by Mary in both the scenes, you know, and the other one we'll get to as well. Yeah, well, I mean, and I'm interested as well in the thing, Emma, that you just said about like everybody in this movie is so horny. It's like, are they? Like For there's the something so, speaking- Maybe. Yeah, like speaking of this idea of like sincerity, it's like everybody's everybody's horniness feels really kind of like obligatory. <laughs> I like, think I guess this is what yeah. we do now. I mean, I think I think Mary and Henry are horny. They want to have some sex. All the people at Mansfield, well, though, it's just a bit like, well, we're very well, bored. Mariah's horny, and Mary, Mary and Mary and Henry are horny. Mariah is horny. Julia is arguably pretty horny. Fanny's sister, who we later meet, is quite horny. And it's basically yeah. like it's basically like a gale of horny people responding to horniness, except for Fanny and Edmund at the center, who were like. I'd rather talk about the Psalms. Like, you know, like, and you're just like. (laughs) I mean, so really the queerness of this movie is like ace for ace. Like, (laughs) I'd say so. I mean, yeah. I mean, joking, but also not. I mean, we are people who made the case for for Eowyn and Faramir's gayness based on their respective sadness. So, like, <laughs> I think we can get into it. Yeah. Yeah. But first, let's talk about this second scene with Mary that yeah. you alluded to. Because the thing that feels really interesting about it to me is it's like the class, like, I think it's, I feel like the Jane Austen estate, which I know doesn't exist, like must have a clause in the contracts they send out that are like, yes, you can adapt this book, but there must be a scene where the lead couple gets caught in the rain and, you know, people's linens are translucent because they're wet and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they arrive gasping under, you know, Yeah, it's like, it's the gazebo (laughs) scene. Yeah, it's the lake scene and the other Pride and Prejudice. Like, it's just like, it happens every time. And this time it happens 
with <laughs> Mary and Fanny, where like okay. Fanny gets caught in the rain and Mary like makes her come inside her like house, which is nearby and just sort of like undresses her <laughs> for a scene yeah. that serves no purpose. Like narratively. No, the the only thing that comes out of it is to like reveal that Edmonds will be a clergyman, which is a turnoff for good old Mayor yeah. Bear. Mayor Bear. Which is like kind of be- <laughs> even Sorry, funnier to so be good. like the function of the function of this sexy undressing scene is for Mary mm-hmm. to learn a reason she doesn't like the guy she's supposed to be with. Also, post-sexy undressing, which, like, I know we'll get, like, forensic about in a minute, but post-sexy undressing, she's also like, while you get warm, wear this dress and uh, listen to me play the harp. You know, which is also, like, if there's ever... I'll play the harp for you, babe. If there's ever been a reason to learn to play the harp. I mean, but it's just, like, her text, too, just because it's in my brain. When Fanny, like, comes in, or when Mary's, like come in get out of the rain or whatever and there's like some gasping and whatever she says um it's always some gasping she says uh she says stay and play with me she's like ah, stay and play with me and then fanny like protests a little bit and then she says uh something about her being selfish and she says selfishness must always be forgiven you know because there's no hope of a cure <laughs> which is just which like, is like basically the mary crawford motto like that is the character is, yeah. in that show <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's truly evil. It's just evil sex energy. Yeah. When she calls herself evil in this uh, scene. She does. Yeah. She does. She says, Edmund doesn't know what to make of me. I'm so evil, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in the book, too, there are these kind of um, uh, references to, like, the fall and, and temptation and, like, serpents and wilderness and paradise and stuff so I think like she she arrives in full kind of <laughs> demon form yeah serpent in the garden yeah. except for Truly. like there is nowhere less Edenic than Mansfield Park like it's a miserable place <laughs> yeah right. yeah it's horrible but I also find it really interesting like I just can't stop thinking about like the contractually obligated rain scene which is the like yeah. how can we inject some sort of overt sexuality into this necessarily very staid and restrained historical genre and so like it's funny to me just as like a quotation of every Austin movie in that way yeah. but also it's like as we're talking about it, I'm sort of like, is this the opposite of the pattern that we've talked about in so many other movies where you're displacing the sexuality onto a heterosexual couple? Yeah, and I, I think that speaks also to um, kind of historically, like, you know, what uh, same-sex relationships, like friendships, intimacy, like the kind of homosociality, like I think that um, makes complete sense. Um, and it also reminds me of one of my favorite programs of the 20th century, which is called Regency House Party, um, which was a reality show on PBS, uh, where uh, <laughs> young, eligible, uh, single, single people uh, <laughs> uh, signed up for the show where they would live like Regency um, like young people um in in a manner much like Mansfield Park and it was like a dating show where they were supposed to kind of court each other 
but then all the guys just hung out with the guys the whole time, like doing shooting and cards and like fun things. And the women were just super bored and hung out with each other all the time. So it would have been a perfect place to engage in, um, in some, you know, gay romance. It's like you were separated. Like it honestly sounds amazing. In a way, it's like the TV version of every movie we've watched to this point where it's like you put a bunch of men together and they have a great time and it gets really gay. And I feel like this is maybe the first movie <laughs> we've talked about that's asking like, so what are the women up to while all that bro like homosociality is happening? And the answer is taking off each other's wet clothes and playing the harp. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sign harp, me up. It's a sexual instrument because there's like intricate fingering and you can maintain eye contact. I believe you just said intricate finger. I mean, to be fair, the shot that they do when they show her playing the harp is like close up on the finger. Hands. I know, I know, I know. It's just another one for the t-shirt gallery. <laughs> um. That's where we're at. But yeah, I mean, I feel like that sort of raises the question that I found myself with when sort of thinking about the gayness of Mansfield Park, <laughs> which is just like, when you are in this super sexist world because obviously that's like sort of thematically what this adaptation is really concerned with and how that kind of slavery intersection comes in is the idea that like the, again the problematic thing of like women are like slaves like they have no autonomy they can functionally be kind of bought and sold into marriage obviously not actually the same but like that's the mm-hmm. same problematic parallel it's drawing so then it's like mm. The question is sort of like when your kind of romantic world and your heterosexuality is so constrained, like, is it even your sexuality or is it just a thing you have to do? Right. Is it just like your business plan? Yeah. Like, you know, like, what are we going to do? Marry this guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Which I guess is like interesting in light of what we were talking about before of like, why does Mary get so sidetracked with Edmund when it's like she has a plan and kind of somehow he's so irresistible. She like can't follow through with her business plan. But at the same time, another interesting interesting thing about Mary though, that I don't think it comes up very much in the movie is that she does have money of her own. Mm. So she doesn't necessarily have to marry. And at the end of the book, she actually doesn't get married yet Hmm. um so I think like that's an interesting thing for her in terms of her choices and and like as opposed to Fanny's choices Hmm. um where she she is maybe after Edmund and you know and money maybe isn't necessarily something she needs even though it's something she wants yeah, I hadn't really thought about that at all. I just sort of like fitted them in my mind into like they're social climbers. But like mm. you're totally right. Like Henry clearly has cash to burn. He like rents a house randomly and buys some doves and stuff. <laughs> he definitely shows up to Portsmouth with some doves and a kid playing the hurdy gurdy. <laughs> <laughs> and fireworks. And fireworks. A cart full of fireworks. Yeah, but it's like I mean, in a way, it's like the Crawfords are the Mm. only people who seem to have any sort of like genuine sense of like sexuality and like romantic attachment. And for both of them, it sort of runs in both directions. Mm. For Henry, we don't really see Henry messing around with guys, but like for Mary, it's like she 
is, I mean, as you say, it's like if she doesn't need money and she doesn't even like the job he's going to have, and yet she seems sincerely attached to Edmund, and she sort of is willing to express this energy towards Fanny, everyone else is just like, what do I, you know, what should I do? What must I do? That, to me, is the question of what do Mary and Henry actually want here? Like, because if we think of them as these people of like independent means who have nothing to gain from the family at Mansfield, and clearly nothing tying to them to like their old life, whatever it was before, like, you know, they're new around here and all of that. Like, what do they want? And it's something I think about a lot because I feel like even though Henry is like a bag of dicks and like we can be forthright about that, his <laughs> attachment to his attachment to Fanny is also sincere, at least how they paint it in the film, you mm. know, and I know that it's a little bit different in the novel, but like, I don't know, they're, they're, the fact that they arrive knowing who they should direct their attention toward, as we talked about before, of like, Henry should go after Julia and then immediately is like, Mariah's hotter though, because she doesn't need me. And then Mary is like, I don't know. I mean, maybe we should talk about the moment that Mary first sees Tom because that's the moment where her, I don't know, attention sort of transfers, but. Yeah. I Are mean, we going to turn to Tom? Is this I, the moment? I think we should just give in to what we've all been wanting to do all along, which is talk about the smallest named role in the entire movie for the next 25 minutes. I mean, James Purefoy as the gayest, drunkest, older brother, most theatrical, dissolute older brother. It's great. He's the best. Is like definitely gay. Because um, <laughs> there's this, this funny moment that you were just um, referring to where like he arrives back at Mansfield like partway through the movie drunk with his buddy from London um, and sort of is just like sloshing around and at one point ends up just like on his ass on the grass and Mary and Henry who we've sort of only just met like ride right. up and like she like peers down at him from on top of a horse and it's just like Mr. Buttrell? Like, yeah. like oh no <laughs> yeah and he like like literally like burps and rolls over in the gravel like they take care to make it the least impressive like the least attractive entrance ever and then he's completely disengaged from the courtship plot so I mean yeah. I don't know now yeah now that you've mentioned that she doesn't need money it makes more sense that she can let go of having to marry the heir that easily like in one single glance she's like oh fuck that actually <laughs> like yeah but then it's also a question of like I mean it sort of feeds into the whole kind of arc of like who is Tom why is he such a disappointment to everyone and like what does she see in him in that one glance that makes her be like well this is going nowhere I'd rather right. change the other one's job and personality and narrative <laughs> than try and work with this yeah yeah um yeah I mean so let's talk about Tom let's talk about Tom he's the first person we see in the Bertram family as Fanny rides up um, in the carriage uh, and he's sitting drunkenly on a balcony um, at the front of the house uh, five in the morning I think they say mm -hmm. it is yeah. five in the morning yeah so it's not he's he's one assumes still up <laughs> yeah oh yeah 
Also, when I, I mean, I remember watching it as a child. I don't think I even realized it was the same character. You know what I mean? Because when Fanny arrives, she's a child. And obviously he's played by the same actor throughout the film. So it's, so it's just interesting that it's like, he's there as a glimpse and then reoccurs later sort of as a glimpse and doesn't really assert himself into the film until Bert, Lord Bertram is gone. And then he shows back up with Yates. Which is when Mary meets him and sort of, right. we also meet him and finally we've like referred to him a lot. Like and there's right. some parts at the beginning when like Fanny's first being shown around where Aunt Norris is like, oh yeah, like this is a mess. Maybe if Tom stopped like drinking and gambling, he could see to like fixing this stuff up. Like we're associated with like a pervasive sense of like disappointment in relation to him from the beginning. Um, and his weird self-portrait yes um, in the hallway yes he's an artist you see yes which becomes relevant to the plot in a number of ways it does but we all know what that means being an artist <laughs> and he does he, he does loves the theater very modern yeah. art it's very modern very modern as mrs norris says very modern describe should we describe the portrait please do well, I mean, I just think it's interesting that I know we all kept commenting when we watched the movie how weirdly empty Mansfield is. And maybe it's because like Tom is off in London spending all their money, but like the house is weirdly empty and there's not a lot of stuff in it. So one of the only features of the tour that Aunt Norris gives this like young child is this like ridiculously massive like oil painting that Tom has done of himself and like the figure of death. Yes looking out at the viewer like out of the canvas sort of at the viewer in this really haunted expression and as they walk by it she's like stops because it's haunting and macabre and then Aunt Norris is like it's very modern very modern you know moving right along yeah what I just realized is like the pose that he's doing because he's got like these wide eyes and like outstretched hands and I feel like it's a reference to that portrait of David Garrick as Richard III like when he's seeing the ghosts in the tent, Amazing. which is like maybe too weird and subtle for it to be an intentional reference or they were just like Googling. Or know? they're just straight up geniuses and they were like, we're going to associate Tom with the theater in a really deep cut way. <laughs> right, because when he comes back, the thing he basically comes back to do is he's like, I've just seen a very licentious play in London. Let's put it on because that'll make my dad mad. And it becomes this vehicle for all the straight couples to kind of cavort with one another. <laughs> but we, we don't see Tom, you know, Tom does not use it for that uh, purpose at all. No, he's on like a completely different track. It's like they're like planning it. He's like, oh, and you know, it'd be great. Let's do it in my dad's office. Like he is, I mean, and like this is what he's doing mm. kind of the whole movie, right? It's like, we just see these weird glimpses of him as he pursues like a completely different storyline that we never fully intersect with. And I think yeah, that is part of what makes him feel really gay because for a really long time, it's like, he's just off doing things that have no place in this heterosexual comedy of manners. And we're disappointed in him and we're not talking about it. <laughs> And the most time that he's on screen, he's lying just prone in a bed with a mysterious illness where we have no idea. He's just kind of expelling bodily fluids left and right. And like, the, the, patented, 
the patented Jane Austen mysterious illness TM 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 that someone has to have in every in every film and then you get better and you're a different person and then you get better and either you're a different person or some or the people around you are different your near death has changed something yeah it's yeah I mean I thought you were gonna say whenever we see him he's lying prone drunk and like on furniture which is what he does the other half of the time when that's he's true not- also at one moment randomly wearing blackface yes in the home in the home theatrical as rushworth says he appears wearing blackface in a move that is so subtle you almost don't notice it and i feel like this rewatch was maybe the first time i actually clocked it because he's sort of in the shadows and we only see him when lord bertram comes home and like catches them all like fucking half naked in his office and he comes in and is like what the balls is happening and then tom like slinks out of the corner and then you're like i'm sorry are you in blackface you know what's really interesting is like when uh lord bertram comes back unexpectedly and sort of interrupts them in the process of putting on this play as he's like walking through the like den of iniquity that is the house it's like julia's like holding champagne and it looks like she's gonna try and like spit it back into the glass and it's really funny and like mariah and henry are canoodling and like um mary and edmund are canoodling and like then Tom coming out in blackface really briefly mm-hmm. feels like his ulterior motive, as we just said, is to piss mm. off his dad. And we learn later, it's sort of like foreshadowing in a weird way, like yes. we to learn, which is that like the reason that he has sort of like broken with his family and like gone on this spiral mm-hmm. is because of his relationship to the family is like slaves and, you know, plantation. Because like when he shows up to do the play, like as part of his like mysterious energy, everyone's like, weren't you in Antigua? And he was like, I don't know, maybe. Like, it's like he was supposed to be there and just left. Yeah, and then where he left to, sorry, before he goes home, is that he arrives at Mansfield with his friend Yates, who we've mentioned, played by a very young Charles Edwards, who is wonderful. who he calls Yatesy. He arrives with Yatesy after having gone straight to London and essentially just been drunk in a theater for several days is the implication. So he first leaves Antigua, goes to London, gets smashed at a theater for like a week and then like runs out of money and comes home. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, actually a, a historical association with like the planters, like the white um planters who would go to the West Indies and then come back and like be sickly and like that that was like a whole thing like the heat affected Mm -hmm. them um but then that also became a metaphor for abolitionists to be like look at you know how this whole system corrupts like good Englishmen um and Mm. so there there could be something in that as well that like Austin was it's not this overt in the book at all that Tom is dealing with any uh, remorse or guilt or shame based on his family, um, his family's connection to slavery. But um, you can kind of take that uh, and run with it, or at least they did in this adaptation. They do in this movie, yeah. Yeah, no, if anything, it seems in the book like he somehow has like chronic alcohol poisoning. Like it's like he was at a party and fell ill and then all of his friends just kind of left him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which is not- also very gay. To be left at a party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To stay at the party so long that all your friends have abandoned you. <laughs> and you're just like on the ground ill. 
yeah yeah but it, there is something about like tom as this floating metaphor for like the heart of darkness if you will of man yes i will <laughs> and like the way that he like in what i think you're right is like usually a very feminine symbolic role like embodies mm-hmm. the corruption and like becomes Ooh. sickened literally by what his father is doing the sickness of white guilt <laughs> the oh. metaphorical sickness of white guilt but Some yeah people just get white guilt so bad they die <laughs> he almost does though that's the thing it's like suddenly imperiled <laughs> it's just you know and maybe we can talk a little bit about um kind of the connection like fa- so fanny the artistry of tom yes and how that connects to this moment but also sorry you just said something that i had never thought of which is that like fanny is a writer and he is an artist oh that's so good yes that's good and i don't know if there's like anything in that but it's just like really i mean like to compare to little women again and like Mm. the 21 that like made so much of like amy being an artist which is not something that like most adaptations pay a lot of attention to and like that sort of made her much more sympathetic and kind of created this like connection of like these are the two and like I think this is sort of now that I'm like saying this like what it is a little bit with Tom and Fanny and maybe why we kind of have found Tom so compelling despite him doing so little is like he's an artist like he must be a thoughtful sensitive person like you know Mm -hmm. he like Fanny is someone who is standing on the outside and observing and like trying to separate himself from Mansfield so that he can see it clearly whereas she would rather be in it but through her separation is able to see it anyway you just reminded me through the kind of I don't know outsidership like moral clarity or something of that or like sensitivity of that you just reminded me that his first line besides like whatever he says drunk when she arrives his first line that we see him say to Lord Bertram when he's like barely in the movie yet but he's like on the edge of a room on his way out whatever argument they've been having, Tom ends it by saying, even I have principles, sir. And then he like walks away. And then later when he's dying or when he's like almost dying and Lord Bertram is worried about him, we get that whole flashback where Lord Bertram is like, when he was a child, he would come up to me and and pretend to be a knight and say, give me a noble mission. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. the movie confers a lot of nobility on Tom too. It's this sort of weird combination of like, too pure for this world which is very gay thanks Frodo and also like and yet that purity has led to kind of corruption and despair like yeah which is also very gay yeah like when your purity doesn't lead you to become a night crusader but instead just (laughs) leads you to become like a drunk artist yeah yeah that is so it Mm -hmm. Does that mean, are we <laughs> painting Tom into the same corner as like Edmund and Fanny in terms of like sincerity? Like, is he similar to them in that way? Yeah, this is what I was trying to work out. Like when you, when we brought up that kind of sincerity to artifice spectrum and like right. the fetishization of sincerities, I think you said, it's like, yeah, on the one hand, it's like, he is so sincere, like he is an artist, which is like something again that we like associate with sincerity and it's like, and he mm. can't, you know, submit to his inheritance and kind of like just go along with the, you know, do what Edmund does, who also sort of like 
tentatively speaks out against his father's like more racist views but at one point Tepidly, yeah yeah at one point like fanny he said something about like oh like things are going bad at the plantation and fanny's like oh well that's good isn't it like it would be great if the slave trade was abolished and edmund is just sort of like well we all live off the profits and that's just like the end of the conversation um yeah but then it's like he also has the like ostentatious drunk wastrel brother vibes which feels Mm -hmm. I mean like the more we learn about him just like you know acting out and trying to make his dad mad right I feel like actually if it's like a sliding scale this is like this is like our hobbit truthiness for Lord of the Rings it's like we we turn everything into a Kinsey scale if the (laughs) if the if the sincerity to artifice Kinsey scale is like is like uh Fanny and Edmund on the one side like the uber sincere the like have a heart attack if somebody says something inappropriate scale and then Mary and Henry are the opposite end I feel like Tom sort of slices the middle Mm. you know what I mean like maybe Tom is the sort of like midpoint somewhere lost between like I wish I could have a sincere impact on the world but also because I can't I'm gonna get wasted with Yates yeah but in a funny way when you put it like that I'm like is it sincerity and artifice because on the other hand it's like only Henry and Mary are sort of in touch with their emotions and particularly in touch with their sexuality in a way that Mm. feels remotely sincere and like even though they're sort of these like ostentatious performative people they also are people who like actually can recognize what they want and pursue it um and are just sort of like throwing sexual energy towards men and women and they don't care and like in that sense I do still think Tom like fits in the middle of those things because he's someone who feels things and Mm -hmm. yet like Fanny and Edmund can't act on them whereas I feel like Fanny and Edmund kind of don't seem to feel anything and can't act on it because they don't know what they want and they don't know who they are that is such a can of worms that you've just (laughs) that is such a that is such a can of worms to have opened I mean basically we have yeah we have to talk about sort of sexuality in the film because what does anyone even want and also, I don't know, my, my brain is going in like a bunch of different directions there because you made me remember a line of Mary's that I noticed really intensely when we were watching the, the movie where that one point when they're playing cards and Mary has a line where I was like, oh, that's Mary's life philosophy where she says, no cold prudence for me. If I lose the game, it will not be for not having, not striving for it or something like that. And I was like, oh, well, is that the philosophy of the Crawfords? Like maybe it is, I don't know. To, to your point about like, they know what they want and they're not afraid to go for it. And everybody else not only doesn't know what they want, well, they don't know what they want so they can't go for it. I don't yeah. know. No, you're right because it's like, there's this weird moment when Fanny is back in Portsmouth and Henry comes to oh, right. woo her. And he's mm-hmm. basically like, listen, I know how you feel about Edmund but he's marrying my sister. And she's like, oh, is it like decided? And he's like, well, basically. And she's sort of like, well, I'll just mourn it. I, like, I won't mourn it till it happens. And it's like, no, he's telling you there's a window. Like, you could do something now. But it's like, there's never even the hint mm. that she will seize this as a chance to be like, it's not too late. Like, it's, she's just going to sit and let this happen. She never True. tries to stop it. You've just made me realize that. that never have we asked, like, why? So she's content then to wait and say nothing Or like, why is there never a moment where Fanny is like, I should tell Edmund how I feel? Because even until the very end, you have to wait for him to say it to her. 
Like, what does Fanny actually want? (laughs) Yes, this is a huge question. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, if you think about her social class and how she's, like, been brought up as a kind of outsider within this home, like, you might consider that she wants an actual home where she feels, like, safe and comfortable and, like, and that kind of companionship I guess that like she feels like that way with Edmund even if the rest of his family um is terrible um (laughs) so I wonder like I mean I I just love and I know this isn't the movie this is the book but in the last paragraph of the book it talks really briefly it mentions the married cousins (laughs) and then it says (laughs) it says like and then Fanny And Fanny and Edmund moved into the parsonage. And so Fanny was in Mansfield Park. And like the last sentence is about not Fanny and Edmund. The last sentence is about Fanny and Mansfield Park, the place. Mm. Um, And so I I always, I've felt like really drawn to that as um, kind of Austin being like, that's what Fanny wants. Even like with all its flaws, like maybe that's just what she wants. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting because that's making me think a lot of things. Because like the thing that you said about her wanting like home is like when she, when they're like, well, maybe we'll just send you back to Portsmouth. And she's like, fine. And she has this line that's like to be in the company of people who see me as an equal, like mm-hmm. with people who treat me with kindness. Like, yeah, that sounds awesome actually for once. And it turns out she- not to really be that. Um, she also she also says in that line to express affection without fear or restraint. Yeah, which doesn't happen, except for which her, doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like that thing about like what she wants is to be at Mansfield. I'm going to resist the Little Women <laughs> reference again, Lori. Mm. Um, and it feels like Mr. Collins. It's like, well, if I marry Edmund, I can stay in the house. Like right. it is interesting that it's like what she wants is this place and also what she wants is this place that is not great like again it's just a sort of like are you really making a choice when you have no choices it's like if your two options are your little cockroach filled hovel in Portsmouth or like the racist house of mean people (laughs) I mean I guess the one with the cockroaches is what I would pick well, and that's why, like, when she is offered this, like, third option, right? Like, right. marry Henry, get a lot of money, have a comfortable, you know, place in, like, in society. And then in the movie, she accepts Henry briefly. Yeah. There's this whole very kind of classic romantic um, scene. They're, like, on the pier in the ocean and and she you know finally says yes and he and they kiss and the and the camera spins around and then it cuts to her in bed mm-hmm. waking up as if from a nightmare mm-hmm. like with a panic-stricken look on her face and then it's the next morning Henry comes and she says actually no and the transition from the moment of kissing and swelling violins and everything to her waking up like she's just had a nightmare. I when when I first saw this movie, I thought it actually had been a dream that she mm. said yes at all because it doesn't happen in the book. Yeah. So I was like, wait, what? Did that actually happen? And then of course it does because she then has the conversation with him. 
but like Listen. not seeing her like like why does she kind of backtrack on that decision like we don't get told by the movie and yeah. maybe there's right. just like no really good reason like there's no answer really except her love I mean, for Edmund I guess if you're a closeted lesbian who's just agreed to date a man you will know exactly what cold sweat of inexplicable revulsion Fanny is waking up in um <laughs> <laughs> listen ding 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 I mean I don't know. It's interesting because you're making me think about this idea of like, okay, well, if there's a, if this is a world without options, surely, I don't know. I feel like in a way, Fanny accepting Henry basically out of economic pressure. I mean, she says to, I think her sister or no, to him, she says to someone right before that happens, poverty frightens me. I think it's to him. And I feel like basically what we're meant to understand from her accepting Henry, but then rejecting Henry, even though Edmund is not free to accept her, I feel like we are meant to have that confer legitimacy on her feelings for Edmund mm -hmm. for, you know, for like the, the weird ghost of this, like love must be so important for her that she wouldn't take the like security of this other path. And mm -hmm. I don't know, it's interesting because in a way that makes it feel like more of a maybe that makes it feel like a more legitimate love, but also it makes me, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, it's weird to reject a man who promises all of the security and potentially a home who she is like maybe attracted to in a way that freaks her out and to reject that for an emotionally unavailable brother cousin who has not professed his love for her and shows no signs of doing so at the point of the rejection. I mean, it's, there's two things that are so weird about it. And it's like, she is a writer. She gives direct address to the camera. And yet in this That's moment, so true. we don't get to know what she's thinking. And it's, but it also like feels like this ghost of an instant of like, what if there's something else? What if these three options, even though they mm -hmm. seem like the only options in the world, because that's how my society works, like what if they weren't? And in mm -hmm. a way it kind of was making me think about Tom, who also kind of feels like he's living on this weird cusp that makes him feel gay of like, what if I don't have to be the heir who does the right thing and implicitly mm -hmm. marries a woman and you know has more Bertram babies? And like, mm. he clearly can't bring himself to like be an abolitionist, but the sense of like, I have a dim awareness, there is some other way to live and I cannot yeah. achieve that. And so I think I'm just gonna go get drunk. And it kind of feels like the same thing with Fanny, like this glimpse of like, I think there's something else, Never mind. I guess there's not because then here's Edmund and now you're going back to Mansfield and the sort of world is closing up again. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Tom by like not pursuing any relationship with any woman to our knowledge um is definitely disrupting like the patriarchal structure of like being the heir wanting like needing uh like him needing to have kids in order to like perpetuate the bertram name and family and fortune and everything right. mm -hmm. yeah i mean and it's like not to like start writing fan fiction but it's like him and mary <laughs> would be good together like I don't Tom. Actually get, yeah like what actually is the problem there 
I mean, the fact that he's overwhelmingly gay and Mary immediately was like, oh, this one retching in the gravel is a homosexual. <laughs> um, and her little gaydar is just like, bing. She goes, ding, ding, ding. There we go. New. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It makes me think of the conversation, just like Fanny is such an enigma. This is why she's a weird character. It's like, it makes me think of the conversation that she has with Edmund on the way back because right after she rejects him, Edmund comes to get her because Tom is dying. He's mm-hmm. like, I hope you had a nice little think. Tom's dying from white guilt and you need to come back to Mansfield Park. And she's like, okay, yes, immediately. And so she says goodbye to her family again. They get back in the carriage and then they have what could be construed as the only moment of genuine sexual tension they ever have. But it's also like a weirdly emotional conversation about each of them and the respective Crawfords. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Because they're in, they're in this like, you get one each. They're just like in the carriage doing the classic, like touching, not touching thing. And then Edmund is also like talking about how he may finally have persuaded Mary to like be a boring clergyman's wife and marry him. And then he asks Fanny about Henry and he's like, has your heart changed towards him? And she says, yes, several times. Mm-hmm. And then their hands touch. <laughs> and then their hands touch. And then she does a little breathy window grab. <laughs> it's little, it's actually like, touched. it's almost a parody of like English people I love it. romance. It's literally, like he puts his hand down and looks away. And then you know, they're both, it's like they hand their hands on the carriage between them. Yeah. And he looks away and then puts his hand on top of hers. And then she yeah. feels it and looks away too. It's and then so like, it's so funny. And then she tries to say something. She tries to say something actually <laughs> emotional. It's just incredible because it's like you have Mary and Henry who are like consummate oversharers who just like constantly pop up at people's fucking windows and shit. And like, just like blurt their feelings out everywhere. And then you get this scene between Fanny and Edmund where she starts to say something emotional and she's like in the classic like stammer way where she's like, I, I, I just, and then like tries to say something. And then he goes, he says, surely you and like you and I are beyond speaking when words are clearly not enough. And it's, we're over here like, actually, I think you need to do some real ass communicating. <laughs> no, like, you're not beyond speaking. No. I think you're on two very different pages right now. Yeah. But it's like, it's not... I mean, it's sort of sweet and it is romantic in a way, but it's not yeah. sexy. And I just kind of feel well, like- Well, should we talk about the sexiness? We should talk about the sex. We should, because it's like the role of sex in this movie is really weird because I feel like when you're yeah. talking about period dramas, like we're in this for the pining. Like we want mm. sex that can't be consummated. And so it gets really hot because you're like- oh Again, God. the moral of this podcast- <laughs> But it is because it's like, you know, you're just like, oh my God, their hands touched. Like finally skin to skin contact. Like, because you like, but Fanny and Edna have none of that energy about them. There's no pining here. I mean, there's pining, but there's no longing. Oh no, it's yes, yes, it's so interesting. And I mean, obviously the 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 sex in the movie thing is the fact that there is almost never ever if like I could once I sort of thought about it, I couldn't stop thinking about it. There's almost never actual sex in any adaptation of Austin. I can't think of another one that actually shows sex happening. And yet in this movie, after Fanny has rejected Henry and they, her and Edmund have gone back to Mansfield in this journey, um, while they're like nursing Tom because he's ill, Henry has been back for like a hot ass minute and 
there's some weird sounds. There. They're just there. <laughs> they're just there. They live there now. Remember when Lord Bertram was oh, yeah, like, come that. live here. Bring your sister. Bring all your horses. so like no they fucking live there now so they're all back home together after fanny has rejected henry's proposal of marriage which is maybe pretty awkward and then there's like you know she's taking a bowl of like bile out of tom's room or something and it's all very gross and then she hears a sound no no no. she's in her own room and here's this horrible sound that i the viewer was like oh no tom's like having a fit (laughs) But then it turns out apparently it's a sex noise because what she finds when she follows the sound is um, what uh, evidently is very unpleasant sex happening between Mariah and Henry. Henry on top of Mariah opening the door and looking, Henry looking over at Fanny and just just with like the deadest eyes. (laughs) My God, he literally... This is what's so scary about it. It's like, it's just so funny because like, we've talked about the scary sex energy of the Crawfords, but it's like, at this point, she walks into the room. He doesn't get off of Mariah. Like they're both, like the blankets fall back. Their bodies are both like totally exposed. And he turns over his shoulder and makes like dead ass eye contact with her, which sends her like drunkenly reeling out into the hallway in this like horrified way. Like when your dog is mad at you and it just looks at you as it pees on the carpet, like that's the face that Henry is making. It's very like, look what you made me do. It is, it is. It's, but as you say, she sort of like runs away in horror and like stumbles like speechless into Tom's room where Edmund is and then he has to go take a look because like she's so upset and then he goes and like gives them a dirty look and like everybody sort of like looks at each other and Mariah's like don't judge me brother um yeah yeah don't yeah she does they have a weird thing it's just the the fact that both of them get to like (laughs) take a look yeah (laughs) and well I'm just like stumble on them because when Edmund is running back in isn't Henry's like coming out of the bedroom finally but he's like not clothed and yeah. he's just like clutching his, his garments and he's remarkably like hairy chest. yeah it's a hell of a lot and then Edmund stumbles on him and is just like absolute blank like and I mean they're very and you know I mean as we said in the plot summary like this leads to scandal for the family and it's all very terrible and they have a right to be like worried about it for actual plot reasons but like because by this time Mariah's married not engaged married to Rushworth but it's like just the sheer visceral shock of the way sex is treated in the scene. It's just really like, it's like the thing that was really sort of made me laugh was like Edmund goes in and then he goes back to Fanny and is like, are you all right? Like with great concern, like you've just witnessed something horrible and traumatic. Like, are you okay? Like there's just no sort of like, it's a little hot or like, oh, you no. know, like, it's just like, it's, it's filmed like this nighttime horror event. It's bad. Meanwhile, Tom is in the bed next to them. (laughs) That they're on. (laughs) While they're having having this moment, he's just kind of lying there, passed out. Yeah. And then they have this weird little almost kiss thing. Because this feels like a good moment. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, we saw them doing it. So maybe let's, (laughs) maybe let's try like two gay teens. Like, is this how you, is this where your mouth goes? It's just like that awkward, like he sort of snakes his arm around her and then she kind of lightly rests her head on his shoulder and it's all very tentative and like, 
but it does feel like comforting like like you yeah bring their mouths together and sort of like they do like a quarter of an inch from each other and they both (laughs) are like oh no 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 and like flee the room Yeah. And I was struck by a while ago, Emily, you used the word companionship, I think. And it's interesting because all of the intimacy between Fanny and Edmund does sort of feel like comforting when the other is in like duress. I mean, it's literally just like, you know, the thing that you said, Emma, back at the beginning of like, you know, five people and two of them are your sisters. And it's just like, there are five people in the world and your dad is like a slave owning douchebag. Your brother's a drunk. Your mom is high. Your two sisters are awful. The Crawfords and the only kind of maybe moral decent person on earth, Fanny. And for Fanny, it's the same thing, but backwards. Like Edmund, the only person who's ever been nice to her in her life. Like, yeah. Who's first interaction? Or is that just like- Right, right. Well, I mean- is that romance or is that marrying your brother cousin? I mean, like, is that, that's, that's like, because never the twain shall meet. Like, no, I mean, like, it just feels like that you made me realize that the first scene that they ever have in the movie together is comforting. It's when she's a child and she's yes. just been brought there and has been told that she's never allowed to go home again. And then he comes in and like brings her writing paper and stuff. And she's like, oh, you're nice. And it's like a friendship. Yeah. And like, that's just sort of what it, feels like like it just feels like seeking out the only kind person in your entire universe and that is again why it's like kind of interesting that mm-hmm. when their sexual energy it get like it is as you say terrifying but also yeah. for fanny it's either something she's watching other people do or it's happening to her from mary yeah Yeah. And it's why the Crawfords feel like such a destabilizing force is because they bomb into this world where it's like, this is a family. There, there are no choices at all. Mm -hmm. And then I'm really struck by the thing. I think that Emily said a while ago about them kind of being like independent, having independent means and not they, their freedom comes from not actually needing that much from these people. Yeah. Whereas the Mansfield like family are like, what is this these sexy strangers yeah yeah Yeah, but it's just like it's just so wild that like not only is it not a remotely sexy movie with like very little heat between the two leads like as you said like sex is really scary and like I can't remember if it's right before or right after right the scene where she walks in on Henry and Mariah but we get our other sort of like explicit sexual moment which is that she finds Tom's sketchbook like under his bed and we realize that what is in it is sketches that he made when he was in Antigua with his father and it's like these horrible graphic images of enslaved people being like tortured and beaten and raped and then there's like a image of his dad like forcing a woman to fellate him and it's just like super sexual and graphic and horrific and Fanny is Mm -hmm rightfully horrified by this and it again is this sort of like weird surreal nightmare scene where lord bertram like sees her seeing it and like is like my son is mad and then like the shot goes into slow motion as she's trying to like back away and it's like just this like horror fever dream and it's like those are the two sexy moments like they're not sexy but like sex sex adjacent moments lord bertram who Lord Bertram played by Harold Pinter, who every time I watch this movie, I'm just like, it's Harold's literal Pinter. You know, something that you just made me think of too, is that his energy is, I mean, he's revealed to be like, 
abusive and like, hor- like, you know, be taking part in these horrible, horrible things that Tom has like documented in his sketchbook. But even before this, I don't know if it's just because it's Pinter, but like he also plays him with a like Lord Bertram also has a sort of weird, almost predatory energy towards Fanny throughout the film. Well, there's this thing that like he is away, and then when he comes back, he suddenly starts Ugh. being nice to Fanny and is like, "Oh, we should have you. We should. You should have a coming out." And like. Right starts paying a lot of attention to her. And I remember like saying to you guys, like, why do we, are we just meant to understand that it's, I mean, he says like, oh, you're so handsome now. And it's like, oh, so she got hot and now he sees her value. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And Edmund is like, but her her brain also father, her brain. (laughs) I mean, like not. But honestly, that no. Yeah, but as you say, there's like definitely this predatory air to like, oh, Fanny, Fanny, you're so beautiful now. Oh, Fanny, I never noticed her you before. Dad, her dad does the same thing to her, kind of. Yeah, She's like, yeah. Dad, let me see you. <laughs> yeah, it's just this weird. It's yeah. There's just this, and as you say, like even though her like kind of only sort of sexual feeling scenes are with Mary, like, like you said, Emily, she's not enjoying it. She's definitely scared and sort of like worried about what's going on. Like there's never, sex is terrifying. Everyone in this movie is scared of sex. Except the Crawfords who are here to, who are here to inflict their sex positivity on everyone else. It's always bad because like Henry's sex ruins Mariah's life. And yeah. Mary is sort of like <laughs> revealed to be completely amoral and is like, well, you know, if Tom dies, it'll be great for Edmund. And everyone's like, you, you, you know, you said that out loud, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I loved which one of you said that Mary was poisoning Tom and that was actually his. <laughs> I his uh, illness <laughs> to get rid of him yeah the secret the take <laughs> the secret take is that mary is just slipping poison right into that food yeah he hasn't been around she's been living at mansfield it doesn't make sense but it's just like it's really weird to think about a genre that has become synonymous with romance to mm-hmm. be and like an author who is seen as a romance writer so funny yeah and yet Mansfield Park, I think kind of why it feels really gay is because the characters are sort of anxious and terrified about all of the heterosexual romantic options that are on the table for them. When you have Mrs. Price, Fanny's mom, coming right out and and saying, you know, you know, I married for love, like in in the squalor of her house, like as Fanny is trying to decide whether to just marry Henry for his money, essentially. Yeah. And so you get this, this idea that like marriage for love is just as bad if, you know, has the potential to be just as bad, if not worse, as marriage with someone who can keep you comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And even like, I mean, obviously Austin is infamous for never showing the proposal scenes, except for in Emma. Mm-hmm. And so there isn't like a written proposal scene for Edmund and Fanny for them to like adapt. But the thing that they mm. do is so sort of comically understated <laughs> and again, not sexy. 
No. And you know what you just made me think of is that, I mean, because what does happen is that, I mean, do you want to, did you want to quote the actual thing? Oh, they no, do? please do. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that after, after it, the only part I remember from it is the eye contact that Fanny makes with the camera right after mm-hmm. she's accepted because that, because we start the movie with all this direct address and it kind of falls away in the middle when, as you say, conspicuously, Fanny has no idea what she thinks. So she can't tell us. Yeah. And then the eye contact with the camera is sort of like he really, really understatedly proposes to her. And it is quite beautiful because Johnny Miller is a good actor. And she basically, though, it's like it's very unsexy. They hug. They just like sort of gently hug. And then over his shoulder, she makes eye contact with the camera in a very like I'm safe now sort of way. Yeah, and then it ends, the sort of last shot of the movie, this makes me think of, it It clearly must be a reference to this last paragraph of the book that mm. you were talking about, Emily. It's the two of them. We sort of do this weird, very theatrical kind of like epilogue rush through like what happened to everybody. And then we end with the proposal scene, I think comes after that. Yeah. And then we sort of end with the two of them walking to the parsonage of Mansfield mm-hmm. together to like, you know, their house that they live in together. And he's sort of like, oh, and we'll get your book published and blah, blah, blah. But it's very much like, and now they're going home and yeah. their energy is the same as it was. When they were children. When they were children, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting. And it's also like, and the epilogue thing that you were mentioning too, it's like the, I never, I had never thought until we watched the movie through this lens, how important it is that Tom ends up recovered but totally alone I mean like he's still at home with the family but like there never has been nor never will be in the context of this story any inclination about Tom's personal life at all no because they pair off the spare sister they're like oh and Yates wrote her a letter and you're sort of like okay (laughs) where's Tom's girlfriend now it's just another it's just another like incest triangle of uh, Julia Yates and Yates Tom. And Tom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tom Mansfield like, Park is actually incest. Come marry my sister so that you can live here. Oh my God. Yes. I'm write that fanfic where Tom is like, Yates, I'm going to need you to propose to my youngest, most planned sister so that you can come live in Mansfield Park with me. Honestly, that's, that's the version that I choose to believe. But then it also ends, it establishes Henry and Mary at home with their respective partners in the kind of weirdly theatrical composition of the shot, like sort of implying that they all live together, Mm -hmm. hashtag like incest quadrangle polycool. But like (laughs) the last shot is that Henry is kind of staring off into the distance one way and Mary is kind of staring off into the distance the other way and their spouses make cheeky eye contact with each other. (laughs) And then you're sort of like, oh, you kids. And then it cuts away. (laughs) Yeah, well, it says something. It's like the narration is like, Mary and Henry found partners who like share yeah. their liberal their sensibilities. modern sensibilities. <laughs> sensibilities. Everything's so modern. So modern. modern. Very modern, very modern, as we said about Tom's art. Yeah. Yes, Tom too is very modern. Mm. And when you're very modern, you might you might be gay. Be gay. Just mm. like maybe every character in Mansfield Park. It's basically <laughs> the Schrodinger's cat of gayness it's like if you haven't looked how can you know if you're gay or not and none of these characters have looked 
and the ones who have are all bi or gay so that's what's hiding in there I guess if you haven't checked how can you know it's not true exactly so before we started recording today Emma shared a delightful fact with me, which is that um, we have gotten our first one-star review, which we um, assume is from Mark Gatiss himself, who's angry about our discussion of his work. Um, So what you should do this week is leave us a review of more stars from that. And you should also subscribe on the podcast purveyor of your choice so that you can know as soon as new episodes come out. You should also follow us on Instagram Please do that at This Movie Is Gay podcast. And join us in giving a big thank you to Emily for joining us this week. It was so lovely having you. What a delight, my friends. I, this, yeah, I just love this podcast so much. Oh my God, stop. Thank you. Thank you for not being the person who left the one star review, Mark. Um, I'll never tell. <laughs> Leave a good review, leave, leave a good rating, and also bash Mark Gaten. <laughs> feel, feel free to leave the comment that says, this is for you, Mark. Fuck you. Five stars. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, here's to another 30 episodes of this energy, whatever it is. Um, we'll see you next week. Goodbye.